All right, welcome to week 16 of our effort to walk through the book of James together. Uh, not only, uh, we've only got a few weeks uh, to go on this. Uh, right now, the plan is to give it 19 weeks. And so there's a light at the end of the tunnel. We're almost there. We're not covering James next week. We're taking it off for some special stuff, but we're almost there. All right, so James is a general letter. If, if you happen to be new, James is a general letter written to all Christians that have been kind of scattered out uh, to a bunch of various different places after the first kind of initial wave of persecution hit the early church. Uh, our best estimate is that it was written uh, somewhere in the early to mid-40s AD. And so that places it incredibly early on uh, in the timeline of the, New, of the New Testament writings, possibly even the very first thing written in the New Testament. Uh, our best guess on the datings of all the other letters come after uh, early to mid-40s. And so... Uh, it's likely the first thing. And this is a letter written by James, the half-brother of Jesus, not to be confused with some other really cool Jameses uh, hanging around in the New Testament. Uh, those guys, uh, the son of Zebedee, the son of Alphaeus, uh, those guys were awesome. They did a bunch of cool stuff on their own, but that, that's not this guy. This guy is James, the brother of, or the half-brother of Jesus. Uh, and uh, he's got a couple of cool things of his own to his credit. One, uh, he seems to have become the leader, not just a leader, but maybe even the leader of the church in Jerusalem, uh, and he also wrote a letter of the Bible. So he's got you and I beat, right? And so James is cool. Uh, those guys um, were awesome. Those other Jameses, they were doing their own th stuff. But James, the half-brother Jesus, wrote a letter of the Bible. We ought to give him credit for something. Now, while we've covered a number of different things throughout uh, this series so far, the 15-plus weeks of this series, I would argue I would argue that the main point of the letter of James is to instruct a bunch of newer Christians uh, with various uh, cultural backgrounds and religious backgrounds to instruct them about uh, in, the, in the kind of the massive difference between a claimed faith and an authentically lived out faith. There's a disconnect between those two things. James has got people in his audience that want to hold up all of the Jewish customs and all the Jewish laws and argue that following Jesus means doing all of the Jewish stuff too because Jesus did all the Jewish stuff and, and that sounds reasonable, right? That sounds like something that you would uh, probably think is important. But James also has a bunch of people in his audience that point to Jesus fulfilling all of those uh, things, the Jewish customs and the Jewish laws, uh, in a way that demanding a continuation of their practice seems to kind of miss the point of what Jesus did. And that sounds reasonable too. So which is it? And well, this is a persistent debate within the early church. Uh, not just a debate, probably the debate of the early church. And in this letter, James wades into that discussion. He wades into that debate and he ultimately comes down with an answer. While salvation can never be earned by someone's works, an authentic faith that actually has the ability to save someone is never alone. It never exists in isolation. Faith is the only thing that can save you. Yes, but true faith always, and the answer is always, has faith-filled works tagging along behind it. Or we could say it this way. You naturally produce the fruit of what you naturally are. If the fruit isn't there, there's a problem. And depending upon what fruit is seen, there might even be sufficient evidence to doubt the faith claims coming out of somebody's mouth. That's James's point. And so we spent the last couple of months digging into this kind of larger idea. Uh, what, what are some things that an authentic faith ought to naturally produce in God's people? And J James kind of gives uh, some major categories uh, for things to look for. How we treat other people, 
how we control our tongue, and then how we view our own sin and the threat that it bears on what we value. All right, those three things are kind of the main branches that everything else stems off of. And, and, and we got as far as chapter 4, verse 10 last week. And James's, uh, James's kind of last thought before we hung it up last week was that we should all humble ourselves before the Lord in order to be exalted. That was his point. That the indwelling sin still buried deep inside of us is waging war against us, uh, and waging war against new hearts and new natures given to us by God. And that left unchecked, left unchallenged and undefended against, we will chase after what is harmful to us and what is harmful to others, and we will continue to puff ourselves up further and further with pride. That was his point last week. But, but the Bible is clear. And not just in James, but in a hundred other places, God opposes the proud and gives grace to the humble. Therefore, a core level posture of God's people is an active resistance to the devil and an active submission to God. A right knowledge of who God is and a right knowledge of who we are and a right knowledge of just how big the gap, uh, how just, just how big the gap between our kind of respective righteousnesses and values are. Like it ought to produce a natural and obvious humility in us. It should just work that way. But I, I don't know if you've noticed this in your own heart or not. Our sin does us dirty, Right? It skews the beauty of who he is and what he promises. It seduces us into what James calls adulterous actions that blindly go chasing after other lovers. Which is completely ridiculous on its face. Like think about that for Jesus, even just half a second. Like what could ever possibly be as satisfactory as God is? Like do the math for a second. What could ever be as sweet as him? What could ever be as lovely as him? What could ever be as beautiful as him or satisfying as him? Let it be known far and wide. Sin makes you stupid, right? That's exactly what it does. It costs you what is infinitely and eternally valuable for nothing more than a flyby glimpse of a, of a Potemkin village. That's all it is. It's a facade that could never convince anyone who bothered to look around the corner. And yet, we fall so easily for the charade because we desperately want the charade to be true. Right? And so James tells his audience, do the actions. Not just, not, not just, not just lip service. Do the actions of repentance. A heart stance isn't sufficient here. A wink and a nod towards righteousness is not good enough. He says, cleanse your hands, you sinners. Purify your hearts, you double-minded. Continually humble yourself before God in true repentance so that he will lift you up. But, um, like, just, just hypothetically, what, what happens if we don't do that? What happens if we drag our feet on that kind of stuff? What happens, just, just theoretically, what happens if in sin-bent hearts that see repentance only as a singular thing and don't make it a present and active work? Well, James seems to want to get into that next. He's going to answer that question. He's going to spell out some weird things that 
A couple of weird things that we see in how God's people present themselves when humility before God is not an ongoing reality. So look at verse 11 with me. Chapter 4, verse 11. James says this, Do not speak evil against one another, brothers. The one who speaks against a brother or judges his brother speaks evil against the law and judges the law. But if you judge the law, you are not a doer of the law, but a judge. Verse 12, there is only one lawgiver and judge, he who is able to save and to destroy. But who are you to judge your neighbor? All right, so those of you with a physical Bible in your lap right now, uh, you may notice that this paragraph is actually connected to the section that we studied last week. And it's supposed to be. It's supposed to be. Uh, a better preacher last week would have definitely like, linked these two thoughts together. All right, that's, that's, that's just the truth. All right? But for the small handful of you who actually understand the vocabulary, uh, this, is, this text, uh, verses 1 through 11 of chapter 4, has what's called a chiastic structure uh, to the entire pericope. All right? And so verses 11 and 12 are the closing of the A section. And if you have no idea what just came out of my mouth... I basically just said that I cut the final section of a poem off that was supposed to bring all the resolution. Yeah, I'm that guy. So why did I choose to save it for today? Well, it's because I couldn't come anywhere close to squeezing the explanation of it into the time that we had available last week. Last Sunday, I mentioned two different verses in chapter 4 that get harangued by people with an agenda, right? Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to numbers three and four. And they get, they get all kinds of beat up. We're going to look at them one at a time. James says that we are to refrain from speaking evil against one another. And then he drops a brothers in there so we know he's serious. Right? Other translations, English translations of verse 11, end up adding a bunch of confusion to the mix. Uh, the New American Standard, it's a really solid translation. It says, uh, instead of saying, do not speak evil, it says, do not speak against one another. The Christian Standard Bible, another uh, translation that we love around here and, and recommend to people, it says, do not criticize one another. So what does that mean? Well, two different groups, and I would say incredibly unhealthy groups, Two different groups take that command and just make all kinds of a mess with it. Um, the first group is the group that thinks that Christians should never have anything negative to say about anyone or anything at any time. We're talking thumper types that argue that Christians ought to always look for the positive thing to celebrate rather than the negative thing to critique. And in some ways, at least in some ways, that desire is usually, or at least often, coming out of a relatively good place. Like for some in that group, not, definitely not all, but for some in that group, it's a genuine effort to show patience and to show compassion instead of a posture of criticism. Like they're trying to apply what James has previously said about uh, a posture, an indwelling posture of meekness, right? We spend time talking about that. Don't cause a fight. You don't have to be the winner. So keep a low profile. Go along to get along. That's kind, of the, that's kind of the game. But here's the, po the problem with that. The, that logic assumes that meekness and critique are mutually exclusive things. It assumes that they can't exist in the same moment. That you have to choose between one or the other, but that's not true. 
While meekness may sometimes mean a withholding of critique, that's certainly the case in some situations. That's not always the case. Meekness does not demand silence in response to offense. And neither does it demand a biting of your tongue when someone is making a mess of themselves in the gospel. Meekness oftentimes just means a shaping of a critique in a more humble and righteous way. Sometimes meekness is nothing more than what prevents you from saying the selfish or unhelpful thing. And an inability to say the constructively negative thing when it's actually necessary. That's at least part of the reason why our culture tends to have a lazy definition and a lazy purpose for meekness. A reticence to step in with difficult truth is not meekness. In fact, it's not even love. It's actually selfish. It's a fear of man that freezes up in a moment when loving action might cost you something that you value more. But to make matters much worse, um, there are others in this never-say-the-negative-thing group that, that don't have meekness in view at all. They apply this verse in a way that argues that there's no such thing as a wrong belief and that any attempt to correct others, especially non-Christians, is out of bounds for God's people. They argue that it's unchristlike to say anything critical because taking a stand on anything is wrong merely in principle. Well, everybody's just, just following their own truth. We shouldn't worry because, you know, the universal spirit of Christ is cool with it. And if this is another moment where you have no idea what I'm talking about, I'm actually okay with that. Because um, I'd rather you not have run-ins with that kind of toxic theology. It's out there, though. Got some books on my shelf that warn about that kind of stuff. It's important to note here James didn't say anything at all about outsiders. Not a bit. Writing to Christians, he says that we ought to refrain from saying evil things about each other. In fact, he specifically addresses those who speak against a brother. All right? Now, James has already written extensively about controlling your tongue in all circumstances and what that says about what you believe about God. So this is clearly not a license to run your mouth about anything, uh, but let me make it absolutely clear. Correcting false belief is 0% in view for James here. 0%. Plus, we still haven't dealt with that pesky word evil yet. Don't speak evil of each other. Which leads me to the second group that tries to apply this verse for their own purposes. And I think it's a far more nefarious group. There's also a self-proclaimed Christian group, and I don't think think they're rightly called Christian. I think self-proclaimed is the right category. But there's a self-proclaimed Christian group that grabs this verse as a part of a larger salvo of half-baked biblical arguments that Christians should never, ever speak critically of church leaders. That salvo usually includes other texts like 1 Chronicles 16 or Psalm 105 when David says, uh, touch not the Lord's anointed. The story usually goes something like this. An abuse happens or a false teaching is shared, maybe even over and over and over again, repeatedly. And most people stay quiet about it. I mean, most people don't want to get involved. Most overlook it because well, I'm, I'm just the normal guy and they're a leader. They've got a following. They've, they speak with authority. I mean, look at all this stuff that they point to as fruit of God's favor. 
But then finally somebody has enough of the abuse and the response and accusation is finally made. And when that happens, the floodgates open. Whoa, 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 whoa. Like, you can't speak against a brother. Try and critique a brother in Christ like that. What are you doing? Don't you know what James says? And unfortunately, there have been incredibly egregious cases where a bad man was able to hide behind a couple of Bible verses and continue harming people. I know some stories. I bet you do too. It's wicked. It's the only word for it. It's wicked. Causes massive damage to the cause of the gospel. Listen, if you're a part of our church family, uh, if you ever hear me or, or another leader say something like that in response to honest questions and critique, run away. Run far, far away. If you're just hanging out with us today, maybe you're not a part of our church family, if you're just spending time with us this Sunday, uh, if you ever hear something like this from one of your own leaders, run away. Run far, far away. Especially before they double down with the fourth thing in this chapter that gets harangued in verse 12. Who are you to judge your neighbor? Well, you're just a judgy person. Don't, don't you, we all know that the judgy people are the bad guys in the story. Hey, remember that one time that Jesus said, judge not? I mean, I don't know where it is. I don't know what comes before and after it, but he said that that one time. It's there. And so if there are so many obvious ruts that these two verses can fall into, what in the world is James actually saying? Right? What's his point? He's saying that if your heart doesn't make a steady practice of humbling yourself before God, it's not going to be very long before what's coming out of your mouth proves exactly where you are in that relationship. And it's here that we can finally define what James means by evil. The Greek word there is the word kataleleo. Now you're all smarter, right? Kataleleo. And while it does have a number of different ways that it can be translated, hence why the different English translations land in different places, most of the time that Greek word is used to talk about slander. Slander. When the New American Standard talks about not speaking against someone, it's not talking about you saying negative things. It's talking about you not setting yourself up in opposition to someone through your speech. Don't take the other team. That's not your role. When the Christian Standard Bible talks about not criticizing, it's not talking about you giving fair and constructive feedback. It's talking about you not being the guy who's always critical of that other person. It's a command to refrain from being the critic. Oh, but you don't understand, Stephen, that other person's incompetent. They're always earning my criticism. They're inept. First of all, that's not true. That's not even close to true. You want to know something I've learned about the world we live in? perpetual critics will always end up seeing every single thing in life with the same cracked lenses always once someone has failed you it doesn't matter what they do they will always fail you good or bad it doesn't matter because you your view of them is now skewed you've been burned by them before and now nothing they do can ever make you happy ever again and so now it's impossible for you to say something positive about them but secondly this is James's point. Even if that other person is completely inept, 
your barrage of criticism is coming out of a place inside of you that you need to be very, very careful to question honestly. Maybe they are incompetent. Maybe even on a level that breaks records around here. But what in the world does any of that have to do with the condition of your heart before an infinitely holy God? You better have an incredibly honest answer as to who is controlling the rudder that is your tongue. Because I can promise you, God knows the answer. He's got an opinion on it. James says, the one who speaks against a brother or judges a brother speaks evil against the law and judges the law. But if you judge the law, you're not a doer of the law, you're a judge. So, so what, what does that mean? He means that we assert an authority that does not belong to us and we set ourselves up as judge over the law that God saw fit to give. We say, ah, I don't like that standard. It's not good enough for me, so I'll do my own. I know Jesus said some things about this kind of stuff, but I gotta look out for me. And James says, who are you to judge your neighbor? Who are you? Last I checked, there's only one lawgiver and judge. It ain't you. Why are you claiming a role that doesn't belong to you? It's his role. You know where that kind of thinking comes from? It comes from a sin-bent heart that grossly misunderstands what God has already done for you. That kind of nonsense thinking and speaking can only ever emerge when people exalt themselves rather than humble themselves before God. So we speak with spitefulness and we gossip and we slander brothers and sisters and we set ourselves up in public opposition against them and we posture ourselves you know, as a friendly but incredibly vocal critic. And we subtweet and we pull our bestie to the side or we add that person to the prayer chain or, or we create a separate group text so we can talk about them behind their back. Here's the deal. It doesn't matter how you might want to try to run with it. It, it. it doesn't matter how you might want to try to sand down the rough edges and make it sound better. It's all sin. It's sin. It all proves something incredibly unchristlike about our hearts. And according to the theme of, larger theme of James, it's also a giant red flag in someone's faith claims because it's completely inconsistent with a true and authentic faith in Jesus. Church, gossip and slander has, has, does a lot more damage to the cause of the gospel than some other things that we like to focus our attention on. It really does. Gossip and slander kill Christian community. It sucks the life and the vitality right out of it. And that doesn't mean that those other things aren't worthy of standing up for. Of course they are. Absolutely. But it is entirely possible to cut our own legs out from under us before we can stand on those other good things. James says, humble yourselves before the Lord and he will exalt you. In other words, quit fighting so hard for stuff that, like, you're not the best one to be handling anyways. You want our church to be successful in the things that God has called us to, to chase after? There are a number of things that we are responsible for. We need to go, do a bunch of really good things. But one of those things is putting gossip and slander to death. There's no place here. And if we don't, the implication here is that it will be the acid that slowly eats away at the foundation of every good thing. But I told you there were a couple of different ways the failure to humble ourselves 
fleshes itself out. The next one is found in verse 13. Verse 13. It says, Come now, you who say, Today or tomorrow we will go into such and such a town and spend a year there and trade and make a profit. Verse 14. Yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? For you are a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. All right, so I know on the surface it doesn't feel like those two texts have much in common with each other, uh, but that's not true, all right? Um, it may start a new pericope. It may be outside of James's chiastic structure, uh, but the thoughts are connected, and they're incredibly connected. Uh, in the same way that our self-exaltation sets ourselves up as judges of the law rather than doers of the law, according to James here, that same self-exaltation bent uh, tends to set ourselves up as sovereign over our own plans, We put ourselves in the wrong spot. It causes us to start thinking and making assumptions about who's actually in charge of our calendar and who's actually in charge of our to-do list. We start to get it in our heads that we might just be the master of our own domain. So we say things like, well, today I'm going to do this. Tomorrow I'm going to go do that. And we'll do such and such, you know, for about a year or so. And then we're going to make all kinds of money off of it, all kinds of profit. We're going to get some incredible things done. Sounds good. Where's it coming from? Now, to be clear, the Bible is not anti-planning. Turn to a hundred other places. It's not against you setting some practical goals. It's not even against you setting some outlandish goals for growth and all kinds of other good things. The Bible is not against you sitting down with your calendar and trying to be responsible for, for the plans that you're making for you and your family and for others, the business you lead, the church you lead, the whatever you're uh, a part of, whatever you have influence over. The Bible's not against planning. In fact, it feels pretty easy for me to go ahead and argue that this is probably the fifth thing that gets harangued by folks with an agenda in this chapter. James is not anti-planning. But James is very much anti-you believing that you're in charge. His argument is that without a continual posture of humbling ourselves before the Lord, we will inevitably slip into the rut of believing that we've got more in control over how the world works than we actually do. He says, hang on now. Slow down. You don't even know what tomorrow will bring. You're making all these plans. You going to wake up tomorrow? You sure? Your top shelf option for making future plans is nothing more than an educated guess. And most of the times, your guesses aren't all that educated. One, you don't know the things you think you know, but two, you don't know all the angles. And you don't know all the variables. You are largely in the dark on this. On top of that, James asks, what even is your life in the grand timescale of what God is doing? Like, you realize that you're basically a mist, right? Here for a moment and then gone without the slightest trace of your previous presence. You understand that that's where you sit on the eternity timescale? Even the greatest names in all of human history get a, a millennia or two, maybe, of people that remember them, that remember what they did. Their stories are deemed so important that, uh, uh, that like, like they continue to be handed down. But like, there's a lot of people that we don't know about anymore. And most of the rest of us, me included, we get a, a few generations on our own personal family tree. 
I do not know the name of my great-great-grandfather. I promise I'm a better guy than you think I am, but I don't know his name. I, I don't know, maybe. Just a thought. Maybe we ought to be slow to act like, like we're the one in charge of all this stuff. Maybe we ought to be slow to pretend that we're in charge of how our lives will play out. We don't know. I'm in control of a lot less than I want to believe I'm in control of. Now, if you're sitting there thinking to yourself, well, that's depressing. I was really hoping to walk in the door here today and be inspired to go do awesome things for Jesus. First of all, James ain't your guy, all right? You picked the wrong apostle to try to make yourself feel warm and fuzzy. It ain't James. But secondly, and far more importantly, we've only dealt with half the equation so far. If you came to James for something to inspire you to be all that you can be, you're definitely barking up the wrong tree. But James has something infinitely better to offer you. Look at verse 15. Instead, instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. As it is, you boast in your arrogance. All such boasting is evil. Verse 17, so whoever knows the right thing to do and fails to do it, for him it is sin. All right, so James says that rather than uh, falling into the sinful rut of believing that you're in control, that you're in charge, that you're the master of everything, we ought to instead actively lean into trusting God's goodness in being the one who's in control. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, and there are a handful of reasons that I can think of right off the top of my head for why acknowledging God's authority over everything in your life, in the world, in, 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 in all these things, why recognizing God's authority is an incredibly good and valuable thing for you to do. For one, it's pragmatically honest. It's pragmatically honest. The, the moment you give up control, you place it back in the hands who's, of the one who's actually capable of, of accomplishing a few things. How many times have you tried your absolute best to fix the problem and you made it much worse? Or am I the only idiot that does that? Seems like the smart thing to do, right? I know I think I'm pretty awesome, but maybe God's more awesome. That can't be true. pragmatically honest but secondly acknowledging God's authority over everything in your life is also incredibly freeing you're swimming against the current I bet it's exhausting or Jesus he promises rest but then thirdly acknowledging God's authority in all things is ultimately an act of worship it's seeing him rightly and it's seeing ourselves rightly and then acting consistently with that truth. It's giving God exactly what he alone is due. And anything else is the opposite of worship. It's an arrogant clinging to what does not belong to you. And what's worse, we're not blind in this. We actually know better. That's what James says next. We, we know what the right thing to do is, but in our arrogance, we do everything in our power to hang on to it, to cling to it, like, like we're going to do it better. But James refuses to mince words here. He says it's sin. It's sin. 
a refusal to continually humble ourselves before the Lord will always, always snowball deeper and deeper and deeper into sin. So what do we do with this stuff? Huh? It's just clear. It's all over the book of James. Repent. Humble yourself before God so that He might exalt you. If you're here this morning and you're a follower of Jesus, our response is the same as it is every single week. We repent of sin and we lean into what God is revealing about himself in the text, right? That's, that's the rhythm. And, and this week, I think he's showing us that he's far, far more patient with our petty attempts at self-exaltation than we deserve. Right? Are we all on the same page about that? How good is he? Church, how good is he that he would continue to call us to himself even as we continue to puff ourselves up with words and actions? Oh, I need his patience. Church, the call is clear. Repent. We should put to death all that is birthed out of false arrogance inside of us. Resist the devil and draw near to God this morning. I'm going to pray and we're going to sing. That's a time that we set aside to kind of help you translate the head knowledge into something more than that. If you want to talk, I'll be, I'll be down front here. What if you're here this morning and you're not a follower of Jesus yet? Can you respond to God's word? The answer is absolutely yes. You respond by meeting Jesus. The Bible teaches that because of our sin, we are all separated relationally from God. Um, that's the default. It also teaches that because of our sin, we are owed the just and right punishment for sin. The Bible calls it death. But God is rich in mercy. And he loves us with an incredibly great love. And even those who are dead in our trespasses and sins, through the grace of Jesus, God makes us spiritually alive. Okay, well, that sounds great, but how? How does he do that? It's in his son. The eternal son of God put on flesh and dwelt among us. He lived the sinless life that we can't live. And he died on the cross uh, as a substitute to make full and final payment for sin. But then he was raised again from the dead as a vindication of his perfect and sufficient righteousness. And now as the king who conquered sin and death, he calls on you to respond to him in repentance and faith. And you can do that this morning. You can respond to Jesus. And I'd love to be helpful to you. Let's talk. Maybe you're here today and you need to respond in some other kind of way, right? Maybe you've been here for a while and you've been checking us out and God has convinced you that it's time to join our church family. Okay, let's go. We can talk about that. Or maybe you're, you've been following Jesus for a little bit now, but for whatever reason, you haven't been obedient to his command to be baptized yet. Like, that's, that's not cool, uh, but we can, we can remedy that. We can talk about that too. Or maybe... God has called you to take the gospel somewhere far away from here, and it's time to make that call public. Man, I'd love to sit down with you and talk about what those next steps might be. But whoever you are, and however God's word is calling you to respond today, let's all respond together right now. Father, you're good to us. Thank you for the scriptures. Thank you for the book of James. Call us to humility before you, so that we may better guard our words and better guard our calendars. God, I'm, I'm convinced that, yes, humbling is an active kneeling before, but we kneel before that which is beautiful and lovely and good and eternal and better. And so Show us yourself. Give us a better glimpse of who you are, and I think humility is going to happen a lot easier. 
God, help us repent of all the times that we have been the critic or been the gossip or have been the slanderer. Times that we have set ourselves up in vocal opposition. Father, protect us from all the times that we are inclined to think that we are are in control of the to-do list and the calendar. We need you instead. We want you more than those things. And you are good. You're worthy of our trust. Like what, what, what have we ever given you that did not come out better than what we would have ever tried to accomplish on our own? How foolish we are. How blind we are. Thank you for your patience and your steadfast love and pursuit of us. Father, for those in here who don't know you yet, would you make yourself known in this moment? Open eyes to see and ears to hear. Call men and women into your kingdom today for your glory. We love you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.